Hey there, I'm David Kern. Heidi White. Sean Johnson. <laughs> you decided you weren't going to use the, the, the I'm. I kind of like disappeared into my throat when I was talking. You are, Okay, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Okay, let's. Hey, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. This felt a little more normal. Anyway, this is Close that. Reads. It's a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Jane Austen's novel, Persuasion. This is the uh, the episode on which we talk about the whole book because we've read the whole thing. We've come to the end. So we could talk about it in the, the big picture, full context, however you want to phrase it. Uh, next week, that means it's time for our Q&A episode. So you can uh, leave a question. Well, you know what? I, I was going to say you can leave your questions in the thread for this episode on Substack. But I think what I'll do is I'll test out creating an actual thread on Substack where people can post their yeah. questions. So so we have a space dedicated to the Q&A episode. Uh, we'll try that. Substack's threading uh, thing is pretty handy anyway. So um, if you go to club, closereads.substack.com, find that thread. It will also get emailed out. So if you're subscribed, you should have quick and easy access to that. But if you're not subscribed, uh, you can still access that. Um, whether you're subscribed for free or not, you get access to this thread. But if you're not subscribed at all, you can still access it by going to closereads.substack.com. And there's no time um, like the present. That's right. There is no time literally like the present, like right now, right this second. Um, okay, so we have a lot to talk about. So let's, let's kind of dig right in. There are three things that I want to make sure we focus on. I want to give... Uh, I want to cover some of the responses to last week's question of the week about whether Anne made the right choice in turning down Wentworth, you know, years ago, which of course uh, does tie back into this week's episode because at the end of the book, she says flat out to him, I don't think I made the wrong decision. So we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, that of course comes uh, following Wentworth's um hastily but eloquently written letter and his profession of of love to her and then their subsequent walk down uh union street was it um and then uh oh um and then of course there's a question that sean asked earlier that i want to come back to because i think it allows us to think about both elliot and wentworth so we'll come we'll come back to those things but first i want to turn to some of the answers to this question uh, last week's question of the week because like I said I think these are pretty interesting so as I said the question was essentially should Anne have turned down Wentworth previously and we have someone who posts as Blue Roses says Anne was right to have turned Wentworth down and that's one reason for the presence of Mrs. Smith in the story. So this ties back to our conversation last week. Mrs. Smith shows us what could have been Anne's fate if fortune had not smiled upon Captain Wentworth. She could have been a penniless widow cut off from her family for having made an imprudent association. But Anne, being sensitive, being the sensitive, introspective person she is, would probably not have been able to accept her situation the way Mrs. Smith does. Poor thing would have been so miserable. If, if you either of you want to jump in as I'm sharing some of these comments, then please feel free to do so. Such as what uh, Rabia or Rabia does here when she or he says, I've been thinking about this comment from you, Blue Roses. I'm just adding the, you know, the Blue Roses part there. I kind of have the opposite take on Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith married a, a man who was said to have a large fortune and was not in a dangerous profession like Wentworth. And yet she still ended up a poor widow because she married a man who lacked character. He was extravagant, we are told, and left his affairs in a mess. Her situation shows me that there are no guarantees in life, that fortunes can be lost as well as made, that husbands can die even if they aren't military men, and that a prudent marriage choice does not always lead to security. What I'm seeing in the novel is that love and character endure, and those are a better base for marriage so a few more comments there if you if you want to join that conversation you could that thread you can jump over there um suzanne says that she thinks Anne was wrong to break her engagement the phrase no faith in herself or friends kept coming to my mind uh which may have come from a, a sitcom holiday special i recently watched so uh, suzanne then inserts an ellipsis <laughs> um her decision showed a lack of faith in frederick and do i think to a lack of faith in herself and a lack of faith in her in her on the part of Lady Russell. I can imagine the blow that would be to Frederick and his felt sense of trust from Anne. The natural sequel to this forced prudence could have taken many forms uh, with with it without Wentworth, or could it have? 
to me, the fact that she shows up later speaks to the romantic view of love in the novel. As a Christian, I see romantic love as God's mysterious and beautiful weaving and working in our hearts. It may not be necessary, but it's beautiful. So the cultivation of Anne's heart could have happened with it within an early marriage just as well. And perhaps Frederick would have worked all the harder having won her hand. He was not a Mr. Smith. As readers, we may not know that truth, but Anne should have, and I think did know it. Um, let's see. Let's do one more. There's lots of great, great um, feedback here. Um, See. I'm okay. So Megan says, I'm not sure what Anne should have done, but we are shown how much she has changed since that time. Suffering often lends itself to growth and strengthening of character, and we see that in Anne. I do not believe that Lady Russell was in the wrong. Those of us with meeker temperaments must learn to navigate the world alongside more pushy people. Anne coming into her own creates a beautiful story, and I'm not sure that would have happened if she had married Wentworth so young. Then Julie says, I think this can't actually be answered until reading the next section where Anne and Mrs. Smith have a conversation. So um, Julie decided to take the the approach that, you know, let's got to read the whole book before we can, before we can answer the question, which is um, a different approach than other people took, but certainly valid as well. What do you guys think about some of these comments? Did, did you come away from the end of this book feeling any differently than about this question than when we discussed it last week? John, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I've, I've read the book so many times that I don't know that my mind changed on the question. That, that's uh, fair. <laughs> I uh, and I do, I do appreciate and respect the the position of sort of letting the book speak for itself and waiting to see how things turn out. Uh, but it is it is conspicuous that Anne sort of rejects that approach <laughs> uh, when she's evaluating huh. her choice. Right? She says um, it's where she is telling Wentworth, you know, I think this is towards I, the think end I of the did book. the right thing. Yeah. This is toward the yeah. end of the book, the penultimate chapter. I must believe that I was right much as I suffered from it. Do not mistake me. However, I'm not saying that she did not err in her advice. Lady Russell, it was perhaps one of those cases in which advice is good or bad only as the event decides. And for myself, I certainly never should in any circumstance of tolerable similarity, give such advice. Uh, so Anne says, I'm never, if I can help but going to give advice that uh, depends on an uncertain outcome uh, before one can judge whether it's good or bad advice, uh, that counsel should be considered and given in some sort of moral objectivity mm. such that it's good advice, whether the outcome is good or bad right, or bad advice, uh, yeah, with, yeah. whether the outcome is good or bad, right? That you can give, you can act on bad advice and get lucky, uh, or you can act on good advice and get unlucky. Mm. Uh, but that's not to say that the advice, the quality of the advice or the, the moral character of the advice changes just because of the outcome. I was because of the title of the book. So the notion of persuasion of persuading and being persuaded plays into, into this question. Did she do the right thing? She says that she thinks lady Russell, which that, you know, that some people, one of the, the, one of the answers in the thread said they thought that uh, lady Russell maybe was the one who was in the wrong. There's different difference that like, that's a big question in the book is was lady russell the one who was wrong to try to persuade Anne one way or the other so if given what sean was just quoting there from Anne and Anne's take on her decision how does that play into the notion of persuasion and and is Anne saying um to be persuadable and to try to persuade is 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 a flaw um that it is not virtuous um how do you read that in connection with this question yeah, I like that question a lot. I'm I'm bound on what I believe about interpreting novels to say that within the world of the novel, Anne thinks that she should have listened to Lady Russell and she stands by that decision. And so I'm kind of bound to accept that, but I don't I don't think that. Like I I think that Lady Russell was wrong, even within the world of their time. 
And Hmm. I think that the book makes a pretty compelling case. I'm trying really hard not to look at it only through modern eyes, but Mm -hmm. even within the novel. Um, And I think that the novel indicts Lady Russell for her snobbishness and Mm -hmm. seems to indicate that she wasn't seeing clearly Anne's true that Anne's desires were as valid as a financially prudent marriage. Mm. Um, Anne's case that she makes was, I was young and bound by duty to submit to the person I respected the most, and she was doing her best, and so I did the right thing, right? Yeah, she Um, parses the question such that Anne can be right and Lady Russell wrong at the same time. I think so. And I also, I, this, it reminds me of, so I'm, I'm teaching a class on Shakespeare right now, uh, an evening class for adults through the atrium at the Circe Institute. And we've been having some really interesting discussions about Richard the second. And one of the discussions we've been having is about a character named York who is, Richard's uncle and is constantly in this position throughout the play of in order to be patriotic and to fulfill his duty as a subject, he has to do what he believes is the wrong thing. And, and, and with that's one of the complicated questions of the play, is it the right thing to ever do the wrong thing? And I, I look at this question of should Wentworth, should Anne have married Wentworth? And I think of it kind of in those terms. It seems very clear that they caused each other an enormous amount of pain, that they were right for each other, that Wentworth was actually going to be able to provide for Anne the whole time. Uh, and, and that Lady Russell made a decision based on fear and snobbishness rather than for the good of Anne, uh, who, she, whom she loves. Uh, and that she should have been more careful, especially knowing Anne's character and knowing that Anne did not have a mother to advise her either. And, hmm. um, and, but Anne's whole claim is I did the right thing, even though it was the wrong thing. I, I don't know if I'm super convinced of that, but I respect Anne. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. One of the, I, I think it, I think I I sort of wish that Austin had gone a little more into Lady Russell's story because, you know, it talks at the end about how um, uh, in 246 in the vintage edition, second to the last chapter, kind of where Sean was, I think it's second to the last chapter, but it says that um, the only one among them whose opposition of feeling could excite any serious anxiety was Lady Russell. And knew that Lady Russell must be suffering some pain in understanding and relinquishing Mr. Elliot and be making some struggles to become truly acquainted with and do justice to Captain Wentworth. This, however, was what Lady Russell had now to do. She must learn to feel that she had been mistaken with regard to both, that she had been unfairly influenced by appearances in each. And it goes on, you know, it goes on and on and says, but she was a good woman. And if her second object was to be sensible and well-judging, her first was to see Anne happy. She loved Anne better than she loved her own abilities. In some ways, I wish we had been able to get more of Lady Russell's journey, her trajectory, her, her, the, the kind of clashing of her affection for Anne and also her own pride of her, like, you know, in a sense, there's like a collision of pride and prejudice in her. <laughs> um, and I think it would have been really fascinating to get more of her perspective. Now, I realize that the book is a being a, a little bit restrictive by focusing so much on Anne's interiority, but it seems like she might have been a character then in another book, like, an Emma or a Pride and Prejudice or a Sense and Sensibility, Austin might have been able to dig into more. I do sort of wonder if, you know, had she lived, she might have gone into it a little bit more. Um, I I know some people think that this was just the book she was ready to to publish, but but you never know. Um, but I find I find her a really compelling character, but wish we could have gotten more in depth into her, like her giving her some interiority too. I agree with that. I think that's right because I have, I mean, anyone who's been listening to the show for a long time knows that I do see characters and their trajectory through the lens of duty and desire. And because of that, I like greatly value the happiness of characters. And, and one of the reasons why 
I think that this book is so compelling is because it's about a dutiful person learning how to be happy. And I, I think that's an often neglected character trajectory because it usually goes the other way, kind of the happiness seeking person learning to do the right thing. And that's a very compelling too. But when I look at Anne, I think what you, what, what will make her a whole person is if she will open her heart to joy and pursue that with the same kind of uh, zeal with which she, she pursues doing the right thing, which has cost her a lot in the book. And that's why I look at the end and I think, I wish that she, to me, that the brokenness of the novel seems that she refused Wentworth. And so it's hard for me to say, yeah, I agree with you. You did the right thing. I think she should have fought harder for her own joy. It, speaking of the brokenness of the novel, uh, right, right around where we've been looking and reading is one of the, the most gut wrenching passages in the book. Uh, for me every time I read it. And it's when Wentworth finally asks, if I had come back a year and a half, you know, after you rejected yeah. me and I had, I had made some money and I had a ship and asked then, what would you have said? And it's in that moment that he realizes. Yeah, this is at the end own, of 11. Yeah, this, yeah, that's right. His own rejection or refusal to, to, uh, uh, put his pride aside and and come back and ask again uh, is responsible for almost as long a period of separation uh, that it would have been a year and a half of heartbreak after Anne rejected him rather than eight and a half <laughs> years. Right. Uh, yes, I agree. And, and the fact that that realization comes at this moment when all of that, everything has already been made right and uh, all of the joy is present but there's this retroactive feeling of, <laughs> of, of pain and uh, regret and that lost time. Uh, it's, it's a really, he even calls it a, uh, he talks about it as a, a unique sort of pain uh, that it's really hard to characterize. There's no remedy for it now, but only, only the candor and the freedom that they have in this moment of happiness allows them to fully feel that pain. Yeah. This, this is a, a more melancholy book than I remembered. It's a very like regret is such a key theme in it, whether it's Anne and Wentworth or Mrs. Smith or, or even like the notion, like Elliot regretting who he married and, you know, other people, people regretting who they put their trust in or their affection towards or something like that. It's just a very, I don't know any other word than melancholy. It's kind of, I agree. I and I think that's so. why I kind of feel like, you know me, I hardly ever criticize, hardly ever, ever criticize books. But at the end of this book, every time I feel like it's cheating that she's like, I did the right thing the whole time. <laughs> It feels well, okay. Just let it be melancholy. Let it be hard. Let this be a hard story. Well, there's a there's a particular kind of melancholy that stems mm-hmm. from a conviction that you did the right thing and it has still resulted in that's misery. That's true, Sean. That's true. Right. I like that. I mean, that's that's like melancholy on a cosmic level, as if I I followed the rules of the cosmos. Right? Uh I did what I thought God would have me do, and and I that have suffered so for it. And, yeah, that that actually really helps me. I'm glad you said that. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sean, you you talked about the idea of what does it mean to be a gentleman. At one point, was that you at the end of the first episode? Maybe. Yeah, I remember that. So. I was thinking, I was kind of in my head comparing Wentworth and Elliot. Um, and then also old Elliot, if you want to bring him into right. it too. Yeah. Um, and then who's the one that she has all those conversations with? Like the one that Wentworth overhears. Um, Harville. Har- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we got all these different male characters who right. are <laughs> yeah. varying degrees of gentlemanly gentlemen. And, uh, 
I, I started thinking at one point, like, is it is it interesting to compare Wentworth and Elliot? After a while, Elliot sort of just becomes villainous. Like mm-hmm. he kind of becomes like Don John and Much Ado or something like that. And like <laughs> there's not you're not really left with a lot of what his virtues are. He he kind of escapes off the page too. Like he doesn't really suffer for it. He just kind of whimpers off and they're not even whimpers. He just kind of like wanders off into the moor and lives in a big house somewhere. Um, but then I started thinking about if we're talking about the idea of gentlemanliness or what it means to be a gentleman, what are the different forms of, of, of that that show up in this book and which does it most seem to suggest is true gentleman hood? gentlemanliness <laughs> what's the word <laughs> so okay so let me let me put it this way in your opinion uh, sean what does elliot think it means to be a gentleman uh we're talking about walter sir walter let um or, yeah let's no let's william start, we're talking about well, william let's start Both. with sir walter because the book <laughs> does begin with him let, well so what yeah. does he view and he has this book right he's like finally i can i get you know i, I can deign to put wentworth <laughs> and Anne in my book right? right it even it brings that up at the end yeah yeah well I, and maybe the the two elliot's sir and mr elliot don't really have a terribly different understanding of what it means but uh mr William Elliot is, uh, he's at the disadvantage of not participating in it as fully as, as, uh, Walter Elliot, because Walter Elliot thinks of it almost entirely as, maybe entirely as, uh, an outward appearance and, uh, and something you're born to. So it's both this genetic uh, fact of the blood. Uh, it's sort of, it's like the Pharisees, uh, taking too much pride and comfort in the fact that they're genetic offspring of Abraham, right? Uh, it's, it's in the blood. You're born into, uh, nobility if you, if you happen to come from a noble family. Uh, and yet practically it's in outward trappings. Then there's a, an outward dignity that goes along with this, uh, birthright of dignity. And, uh, and Austin takes pains at several points to, uh, emphasize the fact that there is not only no, uh, noble sense of duty accompanying nobility for, for Walter Elliot, uh, but that there's even a neglect of duty. And so in a, in a more petty and maybe even in a more villainous way, we see that with, uh, Mr. Elliot too, when we discover that he is, partly responsible for the uh the poor state of this uh unfortunate woman mrs smith and after many entreaties will do nothing to help her and better her condition though it's in his power to do so and he has uh more of a claim of duty uh to do so than most men but then immediately we see at the end of the novel Wentworth undertaking to help her uh, for no no reason but uh, affection, particular affection and general virtue and goodwill. Uh, so I guess that jumps ahead to maybe the next half of the question, right? That's uh, Wentworth uh, without being born to a noble house mm-hmm. acts nobly. Mm. Heidi, do you want to jump in or should I, or should I phrase the question differently for you? <laughs> How would you do that? Oh, well, that's a little inside baseball. We just have to, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to. That's what I'm asking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question would be something to along the lines of, well, then how does Wentworth respond to that? How is he the counter to that in the book? You know, right. you know, the, from a plot or structure perspective, Wentworth has to be the response to i'll use the word villainy or the the vice is probably more appropriate the vice of the other characters so we root for her to end up with wentworth not just because she loves him but because it becomes clear that elliot is vicious and full of vice Mm -hmm. and wentworth is full of virtue 
So how does he then counter that? And and thus, what does it mean to be a gentleman uh, from Wentworth's perspective? Right. Yeah. Some, something I, like that kind of question. Even as, as you're talking, I'm realizing what I have noticed more and more in reading this, because I'm learning, you know, when we read in community, we learn to think like other people are reading with. Um, I don't always think about how difficult a task a novelist has um, to to craft a story uh, like this. That's so much is subtle, so much is under the surface, so much is in yeah. hints and allusions until there's some kind of reveal. Um, mm. And we talked last week about the role of Mrs. Smith in in um, in the novel, and Sean and I kind of danced around the question and answered it as best we could with <laughs> with what we had to work with last week. But really, it is to expose Mr. Elliot. Um, and to give us a compelling enough character uh, who has suffered as much as she has um, to to let us know the full depth of the vice of this man. Um, and Austin also had to uh, kind of trick us into thinking maybe Mr. Elliot is the antidote to Mr. Wentworth throughout the whole novel, right? Maybe Wentworth is the problem and Elliot is the solution, but mm-hmm. it's actually the other way around. And for exactly the right question that you're asking, which is what does it mean to really be a man and a gentleman uh, and to be worthy of a woman such as Anne Elliot? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. for all the reasons that uh, that Sean just said, that Elliot falls short, Wentworth rises. And it's because partly because of his loyalty and his ardent heart, like his ardent love, capacity for love. Um, and, and also his honorable care for the people around him. Even for example, the situation with Louisa, he got himself into a pickle there (laughs) Um, because he was flirting with these girls because he's trying to get over Anne. And we are all like, we're a little bit supposed to wink at that by the end of the novel, right? And be like, oh, Wentworth, that was dumb, <laughs> but not judge him, right? As unworthy. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, but then once he find, once he has an inkling at what his he and his folly has created in the heart of this girl, he he does the honorable thing. He leaves so that she can get over him, but he makes it very clear that he'd be willing to tie himself to her for life yeah, for his right. own folly if that's what she wanted. But he gets out of town, partly to rescue himself from the entanglement and partly because he realizes it was dishonorable and he's trying to make it right. And, um, and, and he takes responsibility for everything he should while also still asserting himself as a worthy man, right? He wants Anne to see him for who he is. He's not trying to hide anything while Mr. Elliot is, right? And so Mr. Elliot is all about these like veneers, like the the outside, quote unquote, virtues uh, that are conventions of the time, but underneath he is vicious. Um, On the other hand, Wentworth is good hearted and good natured. He's vivacious. He's, um, he's extroverted, he's witty, he's fun to have around. So he doesn't lack those social virtues, but it goes deeper than that. He also cares about people. He's also paying attention to that. He has both the mystery and the manners. Um, yeah. And, and that's the man, that's always the man that, that is held upheld um, by Austin is somebody who does indeed can indeed conduct himself well in society because that matters um, and can indeed provide for a family um, that that's important to her and to her society, but also allows that social veneer um, to be uh, less important than 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 the man he is underneath. Yeah, it, I think that's really good. Austin isn't. I think it would be easy to say then or or after this conversation, then read the novel as uh, being very. Uh, progressive or iconoclastic uh and see jane austen is just uh saying all of these uh all of these hierarchies uh and manners are restrictive and empty but rather um but but i just don't think that's what she's doing uh but rather there's a there is a kind of 
requirement that nobility brings along with it. Uh, and so those who are born to a noble rank have this greater uh, task, uh, but that anyone can distinguish themselves as a noble man, whether whether they're <laughs> a nobleman uh, or not. Right? Uh, Austin was a big, a big fan and proponent of Edmund Burke, uh, who sort of famously uh, defends the the virtues of English culture and society in the face of the French Revolution, which is not, uh, which is not only uh, recent, but it was still ongoing. Right, the the war with France is uh, is an after effect of of the revolution. Uh, he's, he, he's not doing that uh, like during Bertie Wooster's time. He's doing it during the yeah. French Revolution. Yeah. And and the conflict that Wentworth is involved in or that makes him uh, rich is is also uh, tied to tied to the revolution. England is partly at war with France because they're very interested in who's in control of France. Uh, and Burke. Burke says. Yeah, in in Britain we we prize these uh we prize our <clears throat> our aristocracy and we prize our hierarchy. Uh but it only works if there are men of virtue in positions of power and that those right. men of virtue can come from anywhere. Uh something how does he say? Uh there's no qualification for for leadership but virtue and wisdom. Wherever they are found, they have in whatever state the passport of heaven to human place and honor. Uh, or, <laughs> or, uh, as one of my favorite Pixar movies paraphrases it, uh, <laughs> anyone can cook doesn't mean that everyone can be a good cook, but that a good cook can come from anywhere. <laughs> and I think and ironically, sort of, a, a movie that takes place in Paris. In Paris, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's very uh, anti-egalitarian uh, Ratatouille. It's so great. Uh, Which is a very but, close uh, to the name Anton Ego. <laughs> right. And I think that's I mean, that's what's going on in this novel. And uh, the the way that she looks at and treats the Navy as a whole uh, is another way that she gets that across. There's uh, The Navy is this way for men of quality to distinguish themselves. And that's happening all over but there are also uh well-placed men in austin novels who are born into positions of rank or power and use them well uh but something else is is going on here uh, for sure but i think uh austin holds both of those pretty closely okay so i'm going to follow up this conversation with a question that's like probably a little bit too um on the nose david question but where do you think wentworth belongs in the pantheon of austin men <laughs> oh man he is know, number two know to darcy a, for me that's easy interesting okay for me i know it's a little bit of a i don't know a, like a irritating question to some people but i think it's what she views how she draws or frames or illustrates her hero at this point in her life is is interesting to me when you compare mm -hmm. it to, to earlier years so, so he, so Darcy, then Wentworth. Oh yeah, for and sure. Who's third? Like, who's and third? I, everybody else is like a far three and down okay. for me. Far yeah. three. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Knightley, I guess. Uh, but I, I like. Uh, I mean, Knightley's fine. I think I'm with you on one and two. My, I think my three would be Henry Tilney. Oh, I like Henry Tilney. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's I haven't read that uh, book in a long time. Yeah, he's the he's the, the love Anger interest Abbey. in Northanger Abbey, and he's one of the uh, one of the few positive uh, clergy <laughs> clergy figures in Co Austin. Collins novels. isn't your third. <laughs> <laughs> well, who's who are we asking? If we're asking Collins, <laughs> yeah, I I mean I I like I like Wentworth a lot. I love his ardent heart. Um, yeah, I yeah. think he's great, and I think he has. A little bit of pizzazz, which some of her heroes lack. Um, and I mean, he is the most in my he is the most romantic hero. The other romantic heroes, like the 
the other romantic men are not good men. Like Willoughby is not <laughs> a good man, right? Um, so well, what about Brandon? Colonel, it's not yeah, terribly I mean, romantic. Yeah, but, okay, uh, that's true. That's true. He's a good guy. Like she's yeah. a big. She's a big fan of like the good guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so he's a little I, dry. Is that what you're saying? Compared to Wentworth. Well, I, what I like about Wentworth is he's actually extroverted and interested in people, and mm. um, he can string a few sentences together. Yeah, I like that about <laughs> him. Like Darcy is the man that every woman is like, "I will draw you out." Like you are, you get the brooding here is the closest yeah. thing to a Byronic. He's not Byronic at all, but he's the closest yeah, right. thing that you yeah, get yeah. in in Austin's leading yeah. men. He's the Fonz. Yeah, but the the women are much more interesting <laughs> than the men in Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so Whitworth yeah, is actually like a cool guy to hang out with. Yeah, which is kind of why. When he keeps leaving, everyone's like, what's, oh. why is, what's going on? Yes, like he is the enlivening force of the novel. He's he's the one who draws, even though not directly, he never like takes, he doesn't like take Anne under his wing and, and make her into something. It's not like a Pygmalion story at all, but he, because he appreciates her, but it is because he's fun that she comes alive. Mm-hmm. And in in a social mm. setting, um, it's because it's like the they go to Lyme because he's like, Darcy. let's go to Lyme and have fun, and and mm, she's yeah. like, I will go to Lyme, and then it is there that she comes out of her cell of her of her shell, and I kind of like this fun, to, yes, like a change <laughs> in yeah fun. What is this fun? I like this. Maybe I will do this more often. Like there's like <laughs> it is in Lyme, like the change of location like catalyzes a change in character for Anne. And it's because Wentworth is cool as fun. It's like fun to hang out with and everyone wants to go where he goes. And that is unique in Austin's canon. And I just think it's delightful. So what is, is that part of her sense of like what, what a gentleman is? I don't know. Or is that just unique to him? It seems much more about character than personality. And you know, the other guy like Edward Ferrers is like super boring. Um, but like just right for Eleanor, right? Like um, so yeah. That's, um, yeah. Okay, so let me let me switch this conversation to what this book has to say about what it means to be a woman. Because there's this there's this hilarious and sort of like proto-feminist and philosophical conversation that Anne has with um shoot what's his name again the old the older gentleman uh oh Harville. Croft, Croft oh, Harville. Admiral Croft oh Harville he's the young married yeah, guy maybe though, he's, right? yeah he's the younger guy right is it, who who is it that they're talking to and they're, they're talking about advantages and is um, it when they're walking down the street oh no at the party when he's writing the letter it's Harville yeah. During okay. the letter, yeah, yeah, yeah. During the letter, yeah, that's hard. Ah, oh, such a good conversation, the best conversation. So I really they, do love this novel. <laughs> well, so they're having this, they're having this conversation, and it gets into like the roles of women, and and uh, like Austin must have been reading some Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> Although, yeah, she could have read Wollstonecraft. I mean, I don't, right? Yeah, do the years possible. match up? Yeah. I'm trying to remember if yeah. the years match up. Yeah, anyway, Austin is contemporary with. With Shelley. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So um, they're talking about, um, she says, for example, that men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much a higher degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything, which is ironic given that we have the greatest, one of the great female novelists or novelists of, of all time writing that yes. through the voice of her her heroine. Um, she says, um, and there's the pr- currently a pen in the hand of a man that's writing uh, a letter, cha- changing her fate. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, they're, um, they're talking about proving things and then, uh, well, I'll come back to that. She says all the privilege I claim for my own sex is not a very enviable one. You need not covet it. Is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. So we've talked a little bit about what this book thinks or, or is suggesting it means to be a gentleman. Heidi, I'll turn to you first because I don't think it'd be fair to ask this question of Sean first, <laughs> although I should have. What do you think this book, and particularly in contrasting 
this what's about to happen with their relationship with this lengthy conversation about what it means to be a woman what is the book thus saying about what it means to be a woman sean just got up went to his stove and is uh he's doing something he's doing some kind of cooking just want to set the scene here you got these nice white cabinets hoping you wouldn't notice you were hoping we wouldn't notice you got up and walked away (laughs) i don't believe it um i think that that conversation is i'm so glad you asked about it because i think it's deeply significant beyond its immediate context of bringing um wentworth and ann together i think it is a commentary from austin on virtuous femininity and masculinity um which seems to me to be some of the mystery under the manners of this book whenever we i keep referring to that because Austin's work is called a comedy of manners, right? But Austin is more than she's, she's more than a social author. She's writing about what it means to be human. And, um, in, in this book, what it means to be a man and a woman who are a little bit older beyond the immediate marrying age who have suffered for each other, and are now trying to find a way back to each other um, for the happiness that they both deserve and that we as readers want for them. And for her, the the glory of the femininity in Anne is that she has remained steadfast and that she has done her duty. And that's true for men, too. That's unique. That's human. That's something Austin deeply values. And uh but specifically for Anne, it has to do with a, a, a quietness and a fortitude and a maintenance of relationship, even with difficult people and service uh, and and domesticity and 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 service to her immediate family and then also to people like Mrs. Smith. It means paying attention and serving people. And, but having a rich interiority so that you do not sink into the silliness and superficiality of some of the other women who are there as a contrast to Anne, which is a very easy and tempting thing to do when you're wealthy and you have social obligations. And so there's, and I think that's one of the reasons why this novel isn't quite as funny as some of the other ones is that there's this undercurrent of a true contemplation of what it means to suffer, um, but not be poor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) right. Like, and, um, and, and to still have these social obligations that she needs to keep, um, and to, to let herself be hurt, but also to, without pushing that away, but also to um, maintain her existence of, as like peaceful domesticity and dutiful service to her community. Sean, do you want to, do you want to, I, I couldn't say it any better than that. And I, I don't think I differ in any way. I, I especially like uh, what Heidi's saying about uh, attention and paying paying attention as as a virtuous uh, duty that Austin is commending here, talking about his constancy, like who's going to be more committed. Um, and she's like, "Well, you die sooner." <laughs> <laughs> um, she also has like the very English value of like not showing your feelings. That seems to me to mm-hmm. be a pretty big part of, um, of how Austin sees feminine virtue is to be able to, uh, to not show every single thing you're feeling and demand people care for you and give way to you. Um, mm-hmm. Mary does that. Right. And she's obviously kind of the, the, <laughs> the, um, I don't want to say diabolical. That's too, that's, <laughs> she's not the diabolical counterpoint, but she is foolish. She's the foolish feminine in the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she just shows everything she feels and demands that everybody give way to her. And, and like Austin really values 
women as being selfless and giving way to others. That's a big deal to her and to not showing everything they feel. And that is, I mean, that's true in Agatha Christie. That's true in a lot of English authors. Um, and I don't know that I totally agree or disagree with that. I think there's a lot to be said for it, especially in our culture. And maybe not just for women, okay. but for everybody. <laughs> we sure. don't all have to say everything we're feeling all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. But in the end, does the book accept Anne's thesis in this conversation? Because in a, she's like, like, the reason she ends up happy is because of Wentworth's constancy. And she's making these comments about books and reading and we're not going to, I'm not going to allow books to prove anything. And, um, and men have had all these advantages of telling their own story, but then we've got a woman writing here. And so is that like, is that dramatic or like literary irony meant to be a wink and a nod at Anne's perspective here? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to take, I don't, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out what the book is saying about the argument that Anne is making here. Not that she's, I don't know, like, uh, trying to say that Anna's wrong, but it certainly seems like sh- maybe she's saying that Anne, it's more nuanced than what Anna's suggesting. I really like about that conversation that Austin decides to end it inconclusively. Hmm. Uh, it seems to end with a recognition on Harville's part that they both feel strongly. <laughs> Uh, and that that's sort of enough that sums up the conversation, right? Cause he's, the context is he is contemplating the, the upcoming marriage of the man who was supposed to be his brother-in-law and, and they're talking at least hypothetically or partially about his deceased sister and Anne conjectures that she would have, uh, she would have remained faithful to, uh, Benwick's memory longer than Benwick has remained faithful to hers. And though they are playfully disagreeing with each other or challenging each other, it's when she makes that last claim, you need not, uh, or the, the privilege I claim for my own sex is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he just, touches her affectionately and says, you are a good soul. There's no quarreling with you. And it seems as if they've each been growing more impassioned as the conversation goes on and more sincere uh, in what they're saying to one another. Uh, and that she, or that that's sort of how the conversation culminates rather than in uh, at least a direct judgment vindicating one or the other entirely. Uh, and so, and maybe your question is partly then uh, whether future events in the novel do that, but I don't, I don't know if that even matters. That's a, that's a great observation on like how she's crafting this moment, because as you say, he, it says that he cried, but before that, like he cried out, you heard good soul before that it's, it says, and cries out eagerly right in the discussion and previously to that captain harville says something in a tone of strong feeling so as you say if they're getting increasingly more impassioned in their argument while also saying things like oh we'll never agree i don't suppose a man and a woman will ever agree on this we'll each have our own sides right we'll all we'll each believe in our own sex but then in the end it's the argument is inconclusive but does the book make the conclusion for one of them outside of the conversation I, I don't know. I don't know because the whole, all the conversations about Benwick and Louisa are really about Anne and Wentworth. <laughs> right. Um, and as usual, and, they're and happening that, while that they're happens. in the same room, but not exactly. communicating. <laughs> they're talking, they're saying it without saying it. Right. Um, which is the English way, the Austinian way. And um, <laughs> earlier in the novel, that same thing happens and it encourages Anne when they're at, the theater and and Wentworth says what he thinks about Benwick and Louisa coming together and it encourages Anna and livens her and gives her hope and she's like oh he's talking about me <laughs> um and and then that happens here when it's and he's overhearing Anne 
and he, he realizes she's talking about me. She's sending me a message. Right. And, and then he's writing the best love letter in English literature as they're writing, as, as he's hearing this. Um, okay. So great. There's another thing we can rank. Best okay. love yep. letters. Right. Yep. Um, I think there are other contenders. <laughs> I think that the, I don't know which side it comes down on, but between men and women, but I do know that Wentworth gains courage because Anne finally says what she wants. And we hear, we find out later that he already is enlivened. Like he already is willing to fight for her and is going to declare himself. And this moment just gives him the push that he needs. But I think that David, what you're saying is right. There's this subtle undercurrent or maybe even not so subtle in, in this moment that says like Wentworth needs to hear from Anne, like when Anne has to say something, Anne has to declare her desire for him and in a way that he can understand um, and not just like hold back and be like the dutiful staid little like in a box girl who does the right thing all the time. He needs to know that she wants him. And that is what gives him the courage um, to finally say what he is feeling in a way that gets them both what they what they want. It seems to me that in a way, the the book might just be suggesting that for it to work for true happiness, it's that merging of the duty and the desire, right? There has That's to right. be a constancy on both parts, that, that meeting in the middle or whatever colloquialism you want to use. They have to come together and they have to, you know, be constant and sometimes be constant in the face of someone else's inconstancy, even if that inconstancy is, is a small inconstancy, right? Uh, 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 inconstancy that you can come back from, right? right. There mm. are some inconstancies that one doesn't come back from, um, not without That's a right. lot of therapy. Um, but, <laughs> Repentance. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that it's that, you know, it's the, it's the constancy in the face of somebody else's inconstancy, the constancy when you're both being constant, this, you know, this is, it seems to me that this book contemplates that notion, that reality in a way that her other books doesn't broach so directly. I agree. Um, uh, and then that way, maybe that the recognition of the difficulty of that is perhaps why the book kind of has that melancholy sense to it that, yeah. you know, cause that's, that's difficult, you know, and, and a lot of people don't accomplish that. Everybody, everybody around them is, lacking in constancy mm-hmm. um whether it's constancy towards themselves constantly towards their their spouse constancy towards their children or their role or whatever um and part of what that the merging of duty and desire is is a, is is the appropriate is is right rightly ordered constancy uh constancy ordered towards the right things in the right ways at the right times well and i um, i like that's that's really good uh except everyone around them isn't struggling with that. And, and I think true. it's, re- I think it's remarkable that Austin uh, brings the characters, the two characters into the presence of the couples who are constant to reunite them. And so that's, that's also mm-hmm. frequently happening. It's, it's the cross and the Harvilles that are throwing Anne and Wentworth together. Uh, and it's not, it's not overt. Austin doesn't draw a lot of attention to that, but as far as scenery and stagecraft, that's always or often where they are when these you know, reproachments are taking place. Mm. Okay. So we're kind of out of time here. Um, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> we just started talking. <laughs> this is a great chance to to find out what your final thoughts are then. Um, I'm going to, while you're thinking, I'm going to tell you right now what this week's question of the week is going to be. We haven't discussed it, but I came up with it five minutes ago or perhaps less. <laughs> and here is this week's question of the week. Now, don't forget that you, we are still going to be taking questions over on the thread so people can submit their questions for us to answer next week. But here is the question for conversation beneath this episode over on the Substack page. What is the greatest 
love letter in the English language. <laughs> Heidi puts forth that it is uh, this letter from Wentworth. Wait, and can we clarify fictional, non-fictional? Because I think Heidi was making a claim about literature. I said literature. I like this fictional, like in a okay. novel. Okay. Or, or, or like, so not a poem, unless it's a poem. What about in Shakespeare? Oh. Does Shakespeare count? Maybe if it's in a play. A letter? If it's it has in a, to be if it's like in a, from a lover to a beloved. Like Orlando so, stapling his sonnets to, or, you know, nailing his sonnets to the trees. And, so it has to be a letter. It like can't it. be an expression of love. It can't be Romeo to Juliet or whatever the heck nonsense. It's got to be written down. Dear, Heidi? dear beloved, blah, 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 lover. Okay. And she will count. Then it can be in a play. Can it be in like Homer? I don't know if there is like not, maybe there isn't oh, one Homer because I, I don't think anybody of, writes a lot of letters. Yeah. But the point I is think it's like a fictional love letter, like okay, a love fictional... letter from it. And I, I, I think a novel, but if you want to expand it to include Shakespeare, no, 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 it's fine. You, hey, you, that. you asserted, <laughs> no, but it was you your asserted. Question. So we'll say <laughs> I've taken from your assertion. So let's, let's say what is the greatest fictional love letter what is the greatest love letter that appears in an English novel? In an English uh, an English language a novel? A work of English fiction? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be English. It can be American, written by an American, but the point is it has to have been in the English language. It can't be a okay. translation. <laughs> yeah, no no pulling out Dostoevsky. Listen, it doesn't matter how much we narrow... Yeah. It doesn't matter how much we narrow this down because... Although that's not... Maybe we should just say any novel. Any novel. Any language, any novel. Um, wow. But... Okay. Because it doesn't matter what we say, people are going to say the thing in the comment that they think, regardless of the rules that we set forth. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Me too. I'm going to do that too. So <laughs> let's let's say it has to be uh, a novel, but it can have been translated. Okay. I think that's, right. that seems fair. Okay. Do you have do you have other you have guesses at things that we're going to hear? I mean, Heidi, you I say you make this claim about Wentworth's letter, but do you have even runners up in mind? I have a couple, but I'm not going to say them because, okay, all right. all, yeah. There's got to be some good ones in the notebook. <laughs> Maybe so. Does it, uh, hold on. Does an epistolary novel count? Yes. I mean, it's like a whole chapter from an epistolary novel. Yeah. Yeah. That right. seems like it should count. I mean, okay. it's a letter. It's in yeah, the novel. Right. And yeah. it's, if it's written, I mean, it, I, I, assuming okay. it's written to a, to a lover. Yeah. Slam dunk. All right. Got it. Yeah. There's got to be something in a Graham Greene novel, Sean. Oh man, there aren't a lot of uh. Well, it's complicated. <laughs> oh, oh, I know the very <laughs> nature of Graham Greene. <laughs> yeah. so, okay. I hate you, but does that mean I love you? Maybe yeah. I, that is a pretty great love letter, actually. <laughs> so from, from the end of the affair. So, um, in the comments on this over on Substack, you can you can uh, participate in this conversation. Let us know what you think is the greatest. Love letter ever in a novel. Uh, it's closereads.substack.com. Of course, you can just follow all the links in the emails and, and so forth. If you want, if you must, you can have this conversation on Facebook, but please know that the officially sanctioned version of this conversation <laughs> will be on the Substack, the post where we post this episode so that the most people can contribute. And remember, you can contribute even without, or you can at least, you know, hover over the conversation even without subscribing either for the free version or the paid version of our content over on Substack. Okay, final thoughts from the two of you. We will have more thoughts, of course, on the book during the Q&A episode, but final thoughts thoughts for this episode. Sean, you go first. Well, I my final thoughts are, and maybe we've touched on them, but that I am always really curious about, and I'm looking forward to talking with you both about the the last lines of the novel, uh, which <laughs> I almost feel they're not dissatisfying. It's not, I don't think there's an artistic failure there, but there's something like, it always feels like the air is getting let out of something. <laughs> uh, About her glorying last... in being a sailor's wife? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't always, I'm not always sure I know how to take the last line and there's something sort of Double it turns into like a it. public novel all of a sudden. Yeah, like her yeah. brother was it's a like sailor. For the glory of England. That's true. Yeah, uh, but, <laughs> you know, and, and he did publish it. One of the brothers did publish it, so maybe they added that. Yeah, that's right. I'm, that's right. I'm with Sean on this. I think Sean. Uh, yeah. But maybe it's it, it could also just be uh, 
ending on this note of uncertainty, all right, that so many of the commenters were commending uh, in the uh, answer to our question last week. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't, the future is uncertain. Uh, you can't know for sure. Uh, and then also a sense of every, every good thing is tinged with a sense of melancholy. Uh, yeah. There's, yeah. there's both happiness she was and trepidation. But a war could come. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then there are, yeah, things to commend. But even the con, the commendation of naval men is complex. And I think there's a lot there. Uh, so more to unpack. Can't wait. Great opportunity to read some Horatio Hornblower. Oh, man. Oh, or uh, Patrick O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien, master and commander. The Jane Austen for men. Uh, oh, you know, uh, yeah. Other than Jane Austen, which is also for men. But, oh, man, I love Patrick <laughs> O'Brien. And also maybe like the Patrick O'Brien for women. I don't, you know. Yeah, that's right. Patrick, yeah, that's right. Jane Austen is the Patrick O'Brien for women, and Patrick O'Brien is the Patrick O'Brien for women. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, final thoughts? I have always wondered why... Um, Mr. Elliot doesn't get more of a comeuppance. Oh man. He but just disappears. He never proposes. She never turns him down. She just like and gets engaged to Wentworth and then he kind of like fades away. And I, I think that's fine, but there is so much dramatic attention, uh, tension regarding a possible proposal from Mr. Yeah. Elliot. Then, then it just like goes away. And I've yeah. just always wondered about that choice on Austin's part. I'm not necessarily questioning it. I'm just like, I wonder why. This is not a book of scenes. It's a book yeah. of summaries with the occasional yeah. interaction. <laughs> There's, yeah, I thought about that a lot. I, I, when, when okay, I, when something is someone's last book and it was published posthumously, I, you can't help but wonder if they were, and like given the other stuff, yeah. that, the way she wrote her other novels, it makes me wonder if she had more that she was thinking about doing. Yeah. Like I'm not, it's not a criticism. It's just it's different than what, the way she wrote other stuff. Well, listen though, if you uh, if you get a chance between now and the Q and A episode to find and check out the canceled chapters, they are. I mean, they're they're different, and they omit the the excellent denouement that that. Well, I was, was going to say Heidi loves so much, but we all love so much, and uh, but they're also much rougher. Uh, so compared to those chapters, this is certainly uh, seems more polished. Hmm. But Austin was a, a tinkerer, so you never know. Yeah, it is. he we you there was no, you it lacks the catharsis. Yeah, that yeah. you would it's as you, Eli- just the Elliot storyline. But also, but what but what do you thing- want? I mean, I feel like it would be so awkward. Like you'd almost want to spare Anne the awkwardness of having to be. That's what in I think it is. That's why I'm like, conversation is that what Austin did? Like, she, yeah. she just like stare and the awkwardness. But you could also evince her virtues by showing her tact in working through a scene of a moment of like difficulty and like how she lets him down, how he responds to how he responds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just, it's one of my questions that I'd be like, if I met Jane Austen, I'd be like, hey, I, I would just love to know why this particular part of the storyline had so much tension to it. And then kind of like, no, well, direct uh, resolution, more of an indirect resolution. And maybe that that's actually more realistic. I mean, honestly, like avoid the guy till he goes away. Super good strategy. <laughs> Great strategy. Um, guys do it too. the slowly freezer out kind of thing. You know, like yeah, that's yeah. Well, she fair. thought it was it's happening to her. Yeah. It's <laughs> exactly what she thought Wentworth yeah. was doing to her. The thing is that Elliot, William Elliot, most of what, most of his disreputable behavior is not even on screen anyway. Uh, right. You know, it's, not, it's just told to her and he's really only in a couple of moments and largely in passing in most of them. So, Maybe it would have been an uh, an uh, an unequitable distribution of dramatic moments. Now it does, though. Given how much he has come to care for appearance, it, it is fairly damning that Austin makes it known to us that it's known to other people that essentially Mrs. Clay goes to live with him as his mistress, right? Uh, which would be which would be fairly 
scandals. I mean, men are probably getting more of a pass than women uh, on that sort of thing at this time. But uh, it would still be uh, tarnishing to his uh, to the reputation that he has kind of carefully cultivated. But it, yeah, it's not it's not a knockdown drag out showdown of any any sort right well as they say we gotta wrap this up those were some those were some good final thoughts that went longer than normal final thoughts (laughs) our true final final question our our true final thoughts (laughs) at least on this book will will be recorded next week when we answer your questions so don't forget to post those over on the thread I'll post that when I post this this episode. I'll post that, and then don't forget to let us know what you think is the greatest love letter in uh, in any novel. Yeah. In the comments below. Um, okay, well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for, to everyone who's supporting the show, uh, subscribing, leaving reviews, telling your friends, all those good things. Had a couple more close readers come into the shop recently, and that's always a really fun, really fun thing to, to meet people in person. So. Um, if you're in the if you're in the area, come by and say hey. Um, all right. Well, for Sean Johnson, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.